Hi there, I'm Sophia Amoruso, founder and CEO of Girlboss, and this is Girlboss Radio. I remember a few years ago, I was browsing on Instagram and kept seeing these beautiful photos of people in this amazing place that looked like a kid's wonderland come to life. There was a pool full of sprinkles you could dive into, there were giant cherries hanging from the ceiling, and there was ice cream. It looked like the kind of space you just had to take a photo in. And thousands of people have done exactly that. They have photographed the heck out of the museum of ice cream, and as a result, it's become kind of synonymous with our do-it-for-the-gram culture and feeling like you need to be somewhere that looks really cool so you can take the right photo for your feed. But the Museum of Ice Cream didn't start out with that goal. Instead, the Museum of Ice Cream had the opposite goal of creating memorable experiences that allow you to be in the moment. And on today's show, I chat with Mary Ellis Bunn, the co-founder of the Museum of Ice Cream, about why we're all craving more meaningful experiences with each other and exactly how we can do that. In the few years since its launch, the Museum of Ice Cream has grown from being a pop-up to having a permanent space in San Francisco, an ice cream line at Target, and Mary Ellis tells me they're experimenting with a no-phone policy at their location. I had gone to South by Southwest and I was like, what's going on in the food space? Nothing really there. So I was like, I want to build this thing called Museum of Ice Cream. And the reason why is I wanted to get people out of their apartments and homes and give them a space where they could go be with their peers and other people. This is Girlboss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. On today's show, Mary Ellis and I talk about why it is we're all craving meaningful experiences now more than ever, how we can all tap into our creative sides, and why colonizing Mars isn't such a far-fetched dream. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Mary Ellis. Thank you. To Girlboss Radio. So I start every episode with the same question, which, you know, all of us have a start. And so people like you, the women who come on this podcast, it seems like, you know, they've they've all done incredible things, but we all have a start. So I'm curious, what was your first job? My first job was selling rocks in front of my house to the churchgoers on Sunday morning. So I converted a my brother's lemonade stand and I would paint rocks and then Every Sunday, I would, as people were going to church, I would kind of like hawk them off. Do you feel like you've always had the kind of imagination that you have now? Did you, like, have you tried to cultivate that as an adult? Or is that something you, that like you retain from childhood? I think that's what we're all trying to do. We're trying. We're trying. I think that that's like the most beauty is as kids is you're in this place that is just so wondrous. And I, people always ask me, it's like, well, how do you have all these ideas? And I'm like... You have all those ideas, too, or at least you used to. But as we continue to get older, our expansiveness of our imagination is continuing to dwindle. So how do you get that back? Yeah. So prior to founding the Museum of Ice Cream, you worked at Time, Inc. as the head of forecasting and innovation. You, were, you started the business at 25, so you were pretty young when you were doing that. What did that job actually entail? And how did you see trends before other people? And how do you, how do, you do that? It's magic. No, it's the thing. You're looking for something happening once, and then you see something. It's like, could be you see it on a blog, could be you see it on the street. It's often percolating in like really small subcultures, and after you see it once, it often is just gonna like you know, plant itself in your head, and then you see it again, and then it's at that third time there's something like there's something here, and then it's remembering, and then how is this gonna manifest and change um, for different societies? Yeah, because 
you know, trend forecasting is like a trend can be a moment or a trend can be like a larger cultural trend. Like having pink colored hair five years, you know, I thought it was like a, maybe a novel thing, but it's like it's something we've all continued to do. But having been in fashion for 10 years, there's so many trends that show up and fizzle out. Is there a way to like forecast the longevity of a trend? I think you understand like there's moments and then there's movements and how things stick is really going to versus like what's the greater force behind it. And I think that things that stay in time for short periods often don't have enough solidification in something that's really bigger than itself. Why is this thing happening and why is it important? And just because it's the color of the year because someone dictated it or if it has a greater meaning, it's going to make it stay longer. So in your early 20s, you had this job at Time Inc. with this incredible title. What led you to get that role? Why were you qualified for that role and what did you do? No, definitely not qualified. (laughs) Okay. It's just showing up. I think where you saw an opportunity is I went into a space and I never really knew much about the public publicity fear. But what I did see was there was this massive disconnect between what was going on in the world. We had this you know kind of recourse with advertisement and how advertisement, if you know, there's a whole conversation, does advertisement work or not? And then understanding how brands really wanted to interact because as a publication, as you're selling through ads, right, the brands are relying on that interaction to be one that's very powerful and more and more. People want to interact with brands IRL, and how do you do that? And so, I was trying to inform you know this massive conglomerate um, about what's going on in the world. And I think across sectors, businesses are just becoming more and more disconnected with their end user. So, take us back to 2016 when you conceived of the Museum of Ice Cream. What made you think, hey, if I build this museum with a pool full of sprinkles, cherries hanging from the ceiling? And this, just this incredibly immersive, you're you're a pioneer in these kind of experiences. So, um, and I know you're, you know, what you're building has evolved a lot and you have much bigger, you know, plans in store. Did you think this is just a cool thing? I want to try it out. I know it sold out like immediately when you created your first activation in New York. Did you think it was a business opportunity? You must have. No, it was a project. So I left my first job at Time Inc. and I basically went to this cafe in the East Village called Atlas. And I sat there every day and just asked myself a series of questions. And I got to a place where just I was like, the world that I want to live in and the physical spaces and environments that they were affording were just so disconnected between how I was spending a time and really how my peers were spending my time. It's like, where do we go? And I kept walking around the city and there's like, you know, kind of winter was happening. It's cold and all these ice cream shops continue to have lines. And it brought me back to when I had first moved to New York. When I moved to New York when I was 16, I had no money and I had no friends. And I was trying to figure out how do I circumnavigate this, you know, massive monstrosity that is NYC. And so I went to ice cream shops. I went to ice cream shops in Brooklyn. I went to ice cream shops in Queens. And that was how I started to navigate the city. And so I kind of had all these like, you know, touch points start to connect. And I was like, there's something here. Ice cream is powerful. And it's powerful beyond at the time that I actually realized. It's so universal. You love ice cream. I hope you love ice cream. You can't be sad eating ice cream. Or you can be sad. Like, you know, I'm going through my breakup and I'm sitting on my couch and I'm eating a pint of ice cream. Okay. (laughs) But it just, it transcends all different emotions and it transcends borders and cities and kind of everything. And so kind of fast forward to, I was like, what am I going to do? I had no job. I was 
being being out my apartment and just trying to make ends meet. And I had gone to South by Southwest and I was like, what's going on in the food space? Nothing really there. So I was like, I want to build this thing called Museum of Ice Cream. And the reason why is I wanted to get people out of their apartments and homes and give them a space where they could go be with their peers and other people. And so we built the first one in 18 days. And by we, there's three of us. And I designed everything in probably about, you know, it was like the space was 2,500 square feet. So it was tiny. And I painted every wall. Um, I built the sprinkle pool myself and found the guy to drive these sprinkles from Texas all the way up to New York City. And then every day I worked the door and I scooped the ice cream at night. And then I cleaned and mopped the floors, which were like horrendously dirty. And it wasn't till the end when it was like, we were day 30 and I was like, oh my gosh, this is something. And it was at that moment I was like, this went from a project into, I need to start looking at this as a business. You've spoken about how your mission for the Museum of Ice Cream is really, and I'm paraphrasing here, about connections and bringing people together around something they love. And it's not so much about taking photos in a really beautiful picturesque space, but People have done a lot of that. It has been an incredible kind of marketing channel for you, even though before you even had built a space, there was a line out the door and you had sold out tickets. Do you think social media is healthy for us? And how do you think about social media in terms of the future of the Museum of Ice Cream? Social media is a beast, I think, that none of us really understand at this point. And I think that in some ways I, I stand back and say I'm a culprit and I'm, I'm spearing this fire that has a lot of unknowns. And I think like everything else, there's positive and negatives. But I think right now we're, we're getting into a place where there's just no boundaries. And the, the mission of our space is to give people an opportunity to spend their time. And that's valuable. But I think as we're spending time and the, the lack of guardrails and controls that are getting put up is coming to a place where it's really unhealthy. There's a big shift in advertising dollars and the way the people are thinking about uh, time as kind of the new currency, time spent, rather than flashing something in front of someone's space, but really uh, capturing their time and their interest, which is something you've done such an amazing job of. There are very few things that people spend that much time interacting with in today's world. We watch films and every scene is incredibly short. The cuts are so short and you watch films from 30 years ago and this watch The Shining, right? Like the scenes are so incredibly long. And so we've been trained to, I mean, and it's impossible not to, you know, com- consume so much information at once and to have an immersive experience like that seems to be the future. What do you think the future of connectivity is? You know, how how do you think that'll continue to evolve? I mean, that's a big question. You don't have to, seems like you know the future. Um, but what would your bet be? That's where I'm spending my time is right now we're in this massive intake of productivity, right? Everyone's trying to build these technologies and these platforms so they can be more productive, be more time efficient. And then you ask yourself, for what? And the fact is, is you have all this extra time, but there hasn't been a new assurgence of how you spend that time or how you spend that time fruitfully. And I think particularly in the real world, and I look at the landscape of architecture and development and how that's currently kind of, you know, being brought in. And I don't think that there's enough people spending, you know, real time and understanding on how do we actually build a world, right? If we keep going on the way we do, we're going to have tons of time. 
And then how are we going to go and spend it? And what are the businesses or what are the offerings and affordances they're going to be worth and, in, you know, to enrich that time? So that's the space that we hope to be able to fill. So last time I saw you, we had a quick coffee at, what's that place called? San Ambrose. San Ambrose in Soho. I was kind of holding court there, talking to editors, quick trip to New York. And I said, okay, so what do you really want to do? And your answer to me was... I want to build cities on Mars. And I was like, what? who is this? What? Who is this girl? And you said it with the most straight face I think I may have ever seen in my life. And so I'm, I'm just curious, what do you mean by that? Like, when do you think that's going to be? And would it look like the Museum of Ice Cream? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I think when I, you know, I spend most of my time in a, in a developer space. I'm on a construction site and I'm working through a series of architects, MEP engineers. I'm working with my civil engineers. And we get, got to this place where when the world that I want to build today, there is so much legality and limitations based on the building constructs and the DOB, right? And that's allowed us the things that I want to build that I think the world needs. Currently, I can't because... Either the, the building department tells me I can or there's just no the physicalities and the, the science of it won't make sense. When I look at Mars, I think we've got so in tune about what physical brick and mortar should look like and what it should do. And when I look at Mars, we're going to have to build that one day, right? And someone's going to have to really be thinking about how do we build these environments and what are people going to want to spend their time doing? And if you get to a tabula rasa state, which Mars is, and it's just blank and vast, we can actually for the first time start to really think about not just the building infrastructures, but our lives for the first time. So oftentimes my design team, I'm sitting them and asking them that question. It's not, hey, what do we want to put into this building? But if we had an entire expanse of both space and time, how would we be spending our time what are the things that we would want to have to help enhance that time? And then, great, how do we build it? How do you lead conversations like that? Because there is, there can be, a, and often it is more successful that way, a structured way in leadership with teams to kind of extract those creative ideas. What, is, what are your first questions in a room like that? And what is, how do you get to the, the essence of, of what it is that you want to take out, whether it's a campaign or building a new space? How do you lead that ideation? Yeah, it's every day. Um, oftentimes it's it's done in sprints and it's taking out small segments and understanding what is that one piece. So let's say it's arrival and I want to arrive to a space. We go and arrive to spaces and we go and arrive to a gas station and we go arrive to a building. We go and arrive to a prairie and we actually start feeling what are the visceral responses that are happening and how do we start to design to enhance the things that are positive and how do we understand the things that are negative. And I think instead of going like, hey, what are the big ideas? It's first starting a conversation is how do we understand the emotions that lie, that lie around these experiences or these actions? And then you start to have the ideas percolate from there. I have this great idea. You mentioned a gas station, but you could have a gas station where the gas pumps pumped Froyo. I don't know if you do Froyo. That'd be amazing. Right, right. I wonder what the response would be. Because like, you know, some people like love the smell of gasoline and there's something that feels like positive or like that whole action of like, you could see like a Katy Perry moment where like people are just like spraying Froyo all over like a car wash. Like a vintage car wash where it's like full service and someone is, anyway. You've consulted with some of the faculty at Yale, which I know Manish, your co-founder and the president of the Museum of Ice Cream. 
is an alumni of, and you've worked on the psychology of happiness. And I'm super curious about that because there's a movement of the study of positive psychology, which I think is relatively new, where traditionally psychology, mental health has worked on getting us to a place of just kind of homeostasis. Like how do we not be unhappy rather than how do we reverse engineer happy people? Like what are the qualities of happy people? What do they all share? And I'm curious, just what have you done with Yale? What made you want to explore the psychology of happiness? Yeah, in the business of people, it's going back to what I was talking about before is understanding. So Lori Santos is the professor at Yale, the happiness course. And how do I get these people around my circle and to get to a place to say, hey, this is what's going on with society. And I think what we have is you have a clear understanding of our upbringing, but we have two generations coming up or coming online rather quickly. And the fact is, is they grew up in a completely different world. And the the digital presence that they live by and the impact that it has, I think, is something that we all need to just spend so much time and not the recognizing, but understanding the repercussions of. And so with the happiness, like I'm in the business of giving people a space so they can feel their emotions. And I need to understand what are things that are triggering emotions? Why are people succumbing to emotions? Why are people masking their emotions? And what are the ways that they're doing and how do you bring them out of it? And there's basic things like um, you put someone on a swing and then you push them from behind and it immediately kicks in their responses from childhood and it brings in these endorphins and pieces. And it's like, that's not me just saying, hey, people like all over are putting up swings. And I was like, do you know why you're putting up swings? There's a psychology behind it that's triggering um, these decisions. It's really comfy. I like a good hammock, too. Ah, me too. Like a big hug. Another big question, what makes us happy? Are there commonalities among happy people? Like, what did you get out of that research in terms of, like, how can we apply that research? I think that right now what we need to understand is, again, back to time, is when we have these time and affordance, what are we doing for ourselves? And what are the things that we do for ourselves that actually achieve some emotion? I think right now we're just in a, we need to start feeling for the first time. And we need to say, what are the things that are actually making me trigger? What are the things that I enjoy rather what than what you enjoy, Sophia, or someone else enjoys? One, you can always just start with having ice cream. We found that that's one of the, the best things ever, whether it's picking up a pint. Um, but right now, I think the biggest spark is it's human to human. And a lot of the things that we do, um, my team every week, we have weekly challenges and they're all to somewhere or another, they land back to a human to human interaction. But the more and more we can have this, right? Sitting next to someone and the the eye connectivity, that is going to do wonders. So you've built something really big. How did you get the initial funding for the Museum of Ice Cream? And how is that evolved? I think you guys are printing money. I'm pretty sure you're printing money. And I'm curious if you've raised money since you started. So Manish and I, Manish Fora, my co-founder, we put together a summer camp for our friends. And the whole thing was like, hey, this can be super fun. A lot of the same principles that actually go into building MOIC. And at the end of it, we ended up with $14,000. And we're like, we're not going to, what do we do? Give our friends our money back? And $14,000 is what we did, uh, we, we put into the business. And from there, we've been completely self-funded. And to date, we have not raised any money. So what did you turn, at least in the first pop-up, what did you turn that $14,000 into financially? Uh, just just in that first activation. I'm not asking about what your you know, the revenue of your business today. The exact number I don't know, but it got us to a place where we could go and f- 
fully build out our next location here in uh, in LA. And then Manish and I, we dumped everything we had. We pulled credit cards and um, we had three sponsors for our first activation and the tickets sold. So you mentioned sponsors. And typically we think of sponsorships or advertising as, oh, God forbid, a banner ad. You know, the way we're served ads today is just so soul crushing. What was for sale? What did you go to these brands and say, hey, I'm building something called the Museum of Ice Cream and I want you to give me money to be part of it? How did you convince them and how did you integrate them? I put together a deck and I had, you know, made up some stats, which were like, you know, a little bit of a, an exaggeration. I had an idea in my head that I was going to open this thing across the street from the Whitney Museum. And I was going to stand on the corner of Gansvort with a sign. And I was going to ask people to come. This was the vision that was so clear. I had like already thought about, I was like trying to get permits so I could have one of those waving banners and like direct people. I never could have fathomed that people were going to show up. But back to the sponsor thing is like, I understood from my time at Time Inc. that brands, you know, there's a massive pool that's out there. Advertising dollars kind of, they're always going to be rich and there's always going to be pockets and buckets there. And Brands are having a difficult time truly getting engaged with their audiences. And I'm saying, I'm going to have a place where you're going to not only be so close, but you're going to actually going to be able to interact in a way that's meaningful. And the case studies that have come out of um, our sponsorships have been pretty remarkable. How did you integrate them? What, what, obviously, you didn't just put a logo on a wall at the entrance of the Museum of Ice Cream. There were other things that you did with them to integrate them into the activation, yeah? Yes. So... But different partners. So in our first iteration in New York, Tinder was one of our sponsors, partners, if you will. And we had built a, we had skinned the the app and we'd just basically built in a, a new front end to it. So as you swiped left or right, it would ask you a series of questions and it ended up giving you your ultimate or ice cream questions. Um, it was, it was matching game, but we were able to say, hey, this action, which is familial, and then the whole idea, which totally gawked, is like we're going to get let people come and have these Tinder experiences at the Museum of Ice Cream, right? That sounds awesome, but we totally failed there because we had sold out of the tickets, so there was no spots for any of these like spontaneous dates. So thank you, Tinder, for your patience on that one. And speaking of working with brands, you have a line of ice cream that's available nationwide at Target stores. It's beautiful and it's just as beautiful as your space is. I'm curious, how did you know it was time to expand into retail for the Museum of Ice Cream? I didn't. Gabby, who she runs our development and kind of every other piece, she's like, with the Museum of Ice Cream, we need to have an ice cream line. And I was like, obviously. And I was like, great, uh, let's do it. And she single-handedly has created, developed, and overseen the distribution to all 1,800 Target stores. And coming up online, gosh, this month, we're expanding um, and opening up our our, our line is now going to be in Safeway in California. And we have new flavors coming out. um, And it just continues to keep growing. Hey guys, Sophia here. I just want to remind you about a special weekend long event that's happening this summer in sunny, beautiful Los Angeles. I'm talking about the one and only Girl Boss Rally. It'll be taking place on the UCLA campus and we're bringing Girl Boss University to life for real. Come to get schooled. We have some amazing women lined up to speak this year, as we do every year, like comedian and friend Whitney Cummings, poet Ruby Carr, 
and co-founder of Refinery29, Pierre Gillardi, as well as TV host Maria Menounos, and so, so many more. We'll have a ton of workshops on how to scale your side hustle, manage your money, and build a brand that really sticks. There's also going to be a job fair, so you can find your next gig, and there'll be plenty of networking opportunities with other ambitious women just like you. And we'll even have a Zen Den for you to chill out and discover new techniques to relax. Tickets are selling out fast, and you don't want to miss out. To find out more, join us and register for the Girl Boss Rally at girlbossrally.com. I'll see you there. So speaking of other people building things out for you, because I know you were painting walls and mopping floors at the beginning with your first space, and you posted something recently on Instagram that talked about how you weren't on the ground for the first time when your team opened a space, and that it was really hard not to fly out there the night before to make sure everything was okay. What is your advice to fellow entrepreneurs who are hiring, even their first employee, trying to scale their vision, which is really hard because people can interpret it in such a number of ways. And it's also challenging to have people care. They say no one will care as much as you do, um, at least to me, which I don't necessarily believe, but that's the adage. How have you approached building a team and scaling your vision? The mission needs to be so clear. And when that mission is clear, I surround myself when we have a fantastic team, but they understand it so deeply that when they're on the ground and I'm not there or vice versa, they're able to seek out and see that mission through. And I think the most difficult thing that I'm struggling with on a day-to-day basis is how do you give them the most autonomy and how do you give them decision of choice and also to, you know, this is their playing field too and make sure that they can feel the ownership. And I think oftentimes the mentality of a leader or an entrepreneur saying, hey, doesn't ma- it's not going to ever matter as much to your team members. And I think they've gotten to a place where they feel that it's their own and they do. And that's very powerful. So how do you think about leadership more broadly? Um, what would your advice be to first-time entrepreneurs who are looking to lead a team? You know so much about happiness Do you have any advice for how to build, I want to know this personally, how to build a happy team? It's so hard. It's, it, you know, the dynamics and and, and even just building right now, we're at this percolation of of growth, right? We moved into our first office a year ago and we're about to move out of it. But it was four of us. We were on the road for 18 months and I got back to New York and I was like looking around and I had a 500 square foot studio apartment and I was like, okay, is is this going to be our office? Like, I had nowhere to go. And now I look around and I have, you know, every day there's a new hire and we're, we're building and we're growing. And it's how do you build the leadership team? And I think the most thing is you need a number one, you need a number two, and then you need another four, and, you know, number three, four and five. And it's finding the people really on the middle management and the upper management piece that can lead the teams forward. And I'm reading this book right now called Essentialism, and it's really helped me to define. And every day I'm waking up and it's like, what is the number one most important thing? And everything everything that's not that, I just have to say, it's okay. I'm not going to touch it. Uh, I'm like 13 or something years into building businesses. And it's still hard. Is it still hard for you? Is it fair to say it's still hard? It's the most difficult thing in the world. I wake up every morning and saying... I'm doing this again because three hours before when I was trying to go to sleep, I was like, there's no way I can keep going. This is so difficult. Everything's falling apart. And that's the thing. Like that, you know, it ebbs and flows, not in a week, but it ebbs and flows within the span of 15 minutes. Things are falling apart. Then there's a win and there's 15 losses. And then there's, 
you know, it's fires and uh, all day long. What do you look for when you're hiring? Uh, people that understand that anything is truly possible. What are some of the dumbest questions? <laughs> I just, because I've had people come to interviews and call my company nasty girl and, you know, ask our head of people or other executives in the company, like, what do you, what do you do? Or like, how does this work? Or have you ever thought about changing the name? It's kind of, we're conservative. Because, and you learn a lot about people when, by the questions they ask, more than what they say, the questions they ask. And I hope they have questions at the very kind of least. What's the dumbest question anyone's ever asked you in a job interview? I think that, you know, there's oftentimes, it's always the, the non-people who don't do their research, but like you get the, what is the Museum of Ice Cream? And it's like, really? Are you serious? Yeah. And I think that it's, and sometimes too, it's like, it's something that's hard to explain. Everyone's asking me, well, how did you start? And I was like, well, you can probably read that online. Um, do your research. Do you say that to them? Yeah. Yeah. I can see you saying that. I wish I, I, I need to learn how to say that to people. What has your biggest career mistake been so far because you've done so much and you but you also talk about firing people and you've talked about not even you know being qualified for your job at Time Inc. What's the biggest kind of snafu you found yourself in? Oh it's every day. (laughs) You know there is a certain point where we got to where every single one of you know there's five people in a room and the five people were comprising my entire team. And single-handedly, we had 35 jobs. And somehow, I got convinced in my own head that that was okay. And I think that the snafu moment is I still have these expectations that people can do 1,900 things for 22 hours a day, and it's not sustainable. And being able to really step back and say, I need to not only exude balance, but I need to give people balance. And so right now, what I do is I leave my office early not because I'm done with work, but so people feel like they can have their own time and space. Do you email them when you get home? <laughs> well, no, I slack them. Okay, got it. How do you think about intellectual property? Which, if you're listening, intellectual property just means, okay, I have a brand. I want to take out into other places. You've been called the millennial Walt Disney. I think Walt Disney is the ultimate example of that. They have Marvel. They start with a comic book and they turn it into... A, a show or a film, and then there's merchandise, and there's so many incredible extensions of that IP. And you've done some of that, and it seems like you could build an IP machine. How do you think about the extensions, not just retail extensions, but building other brands or other kind of under the world of the Museum of Ice Cream? Is that is that something you think about? All the time. Um, it's something we're working on right now. I'm um, thinking about that the, you're building a brand that has, you know, I think about it as octopus. And there's so many different tentacles that go out and they touch people. And then I'm like, but I need several octopuses that all need to have those different touch points and really finding the intersection. And to be honest, the in the intellectual property space, I went into it pretty naive and got into a place where like there's knockoff museum of ice creams all over the world. And I am like, how is this feasibly possible? And you think you do all the right things, right? I have I have rights to these things. I have copyrights. Um, I'm, my patent is hopefully about to pass um, or get approved. I have on our, on our pool, which is like so exciting and we can be able to protect these things. But then it's like, at what point does it become worth protecting? And I think the bigger thing is, 
it's not. You just need to build something that is so clearly strong and that people so, you know, they just identify with that you, your, your intellectual property is the brand. You have to prove to other people, for anyone listening, you have to be able to prove to other people that you did it first yeah. and show examples of that. And you have to prove it in commerce. Like we actually did this and it wasn't just for fun, like someone paid for it. And the first thing you should do when you start a business, one of the very first things you should do is protect the name of your business because you can build a big brand and then find yourself like we have here at Girl Boss that we don't own apparel. Like what? Like we don't own apparel. You have to have, you have to go into, I have, I have the copyright mark on like everything from a hair clip to a water bottle and you have to go into every single class and get the marks and it's so expensive. It's so expensive and then to enforce it, if you create something and you can only hope to create something that has those legs octopus wise, but that's going to mean other people go, there's so much girl, girl boss bootleg shit on Etsy and even on Google Shopping. It's like It's in the worst cursive lettering. And just enforcing it, sending these people cease and desists or telling them to take that down. And I'm sorry if you've done this because definitely someone listening has an Instagram profile. It's called like Girl Boss Consulting or something like that. It's just like it's expensive just to enforce it. It's it's a game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. And that's what we were looking at just domestically. When you get into international terrain, it becomes next to impossible. (laughs) We've talked a lot about the future. Yeah. What are your goals for the future? Today or this week? So there's so much. So we're we're in the course of right now. Um, can't really talk much about it, but we're building a new brand, and that's um, kind of an evolution. And Museum of Ice Cream is growing. We're building locations um, more than I could have ever fathomed or dreamed about, both here in the United States. Permanent, and permanent, all permanent locations. Yeah. There's a big run on both sustainability and also just we've we've have. I have five sprints I've looked at up, so five different locations, including the pint shop, and the demand and the need is just there. So why not give it as a, a permanent entity for the cities that we're in? There's a couple questions that I ask everyone that comes on Girl Boss Radio just to kind of tie the episode up with a bow. And one thing we talk a lot of, about here at Girl Boss is this concept of success, which is just, you know, needs to be completely dismantled and rethought because it... It shouldn't be just financial success. It shouldn't just be getting, you know, married and having a child and doing everything by the age of 30 or whatever you consider success in this world. What is your concept of success or what does success mean to you right right now? Right now, my success is it's really lying in the in the arms of our visitors and understanding what was that experience that we as a team were able to deliver. And whether that was good or is bad um, isn't what we're measuring success on, but it's understanding the learnings of those. We're in a place of just like acquiring and acquiring knowledge in order to be able to iterate and change and be able to take that information and actually build it into something that is can prosper. We also have something called girl boss moments, which what is that? It's kind of like a hallmark moment. We didn't really do a lot of thinking when I coined that term. It's really the time, most recently, that out of your own agency, even if you're obligated to that thing, that you like wanted to do it and you showed up. And it should be something for yourself, and it can be anything from a bubble bath to making a great hire. What was your most recent girl boss moment? Two days ago. So I was on the construction site and we had about like 65 consultants. And these are predominantly like, you know, 45 to 65 year old white men. And these guys are, you know, massive developers. They're engineers and they're architects. And there's me and I show up 
And I was like, all right, guys, I'm running this thing. And this is what I want to build. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is how it's going to be different. And everyone looks at me and we're like, first, like, this is nuts. And then I just took them through the plans. And it was when everyone started to tune in and be like, hey, this idea is so unfathomable, but it's actually going to work. And when you started seeing their heads nod and be like, the guy, you know, my, my GC who's skeptical and this guy who's skeptical and my MEP engineer who's skeptical, my structural engineer who's skeptical. And they're all like, whoa, she's thought about everything. And then I look at it, I was like, I haven't thought about everything. My team has thought about everything. And it was in that moment, I was like, this is, this is awesome. Yeah. Demanding that kind of respect can be really hard. And it's, in some ways it's earned. And I think you've earned it. Mary Ellis, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. And before you go, I want to ask you for a quick favor. If you like Girlboss Radio, and I hope you do, please rate and review the show on iTunes or follow us on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. We want to reach as many of you as possible. And the more views we have, the easier it is for new listeners to discover us. That's it for now. Talk to you soon.